any fan of Sam Peckinpah's movies will know who this very talented gentleman is. LQ was a kind of mainstay in Westerns from not just the Peckinpah films. He worked with other notable Western directors like Bud Bedecker, Raoul Walsh, as well as an assortment of TV appearances on The Virginian. And yeah, it was after the studio system, but, but he worked as much as any of those guys. Uh, he, he did a ton of movies from the early 50s until the, the 90s. He was working consistently, I think. So. Well, we've spent about the last year watching a lot of LQ's films because uh, the resume runs pretty deep. And the thing that I've noticed about him, he's someone I've always admired and always liked watching, uh, always found him very interesting in the choices he made. But I think what LQ really brings is he he tends to steal scenes, even from some of the great, great actors. I'm thinking specifically of his scene in Casino, where he played the gaming commissioner, Pat Webb, opposite De Niro, thinking about The Edge, all the scenes with Anthony Hopkins. He's worked with greatest Western actors, including John Wayne, Lee, Van Cleef, um, you name it. He's been there. It was it's really great to talk to him. So, LQ Jones. When I started in 54, everybody was getting out of pictures. You couldn't make a living doing pictures. You had to do television. And I did, what, 12 or 13 movies before I ever did a television show. I went completely ass backwards from anybody else. But I started with Ralph Walsh. And it was because of Ral, had it not been for Ral and uh, Steve Trilling at Warner's, I would have never gotten in the business. I mean, they, they stuck their neck out when uh, they had no business doing so. But that's the way they were. The whole business was that way. So meeting Raul Walsh and... Uh, Steve Trilling? Steve Trilling on Battle Cry was your entry into... Uh, into the business. I, I hate to tell the story because it's long, but let me do so. Remember Fess Parker? Sure. Fess and I were roommates for, I don't know, three years in, in college. And when I came out, I stopped with him. And as a joke, he took the stuffing from a shirt from the laundry and drew me a map on how to get to Warner Brothers because he said I should go out there and get into <laughs> to Battlecraft. Well, I found Warner Brothers okay, but as I was walking up in that period of time, which was 54, there was one uh, little stand where the, the, the cop checked you in or out. It's only one, and you've got to go through him. Well, I'm screwed already. I've got the map on where to go, but I'm going to go that far and no further because he's not going to let me in. Just as I stepped up, a little blonde with the tightest sweater you have ever seen in your life— went the other way. Guess where his eyes went? He punched the button and I was in. Without that, I wouldn't have been in, period. But now everything starts going on top of each other. I went in and I went into Hoyt Bauer's office where I was on the map shown to do. Kathy, his secretary, who would have thrown King Kong out if he didn't have an appointment, didn't make any difference, was down getting coffee. And Hoyt's on the telephone so I walk in, sit down, and put my feet up on his desk and wait for him to get through and told him how lucky 
he was that I was there to play the part. Well, we talked for a few minutes, and he said, look, I tell you what, yeah, uh, give me a kid, uh, give me a call this afternoon, okay? So I went back, and I told Fess what had happened, and he said, well, look, when, when you're talking, I said, oh, I'm not going to talk with him for Christ's sake. A man that, what, 10 minutes after you, you meet him says, call me back, is not planning to take the call. He said, oh, yeah, or he wouldn't have, wouldn't have told you. This is the business. So I called him back, and he said, no, we've checked. We, we uh, tested 250 people for your part. All pros, all been around the business for a while. Uh, I, it was fun. Thank you. Because we, you know, and I said, wait a minute, you, get off the damn line, come out in the morning, and I'll take you into Solly Biano. Solly was head of casting. And he said, Solly will throw your ass out, and that's the end of that. So I go to see Solly the next morning. He's taking five or ten minutes telling me why I can't possibly be in the picture. The phone rings. He picks up the phone and he's talking, yeah, yeah. And he was telling him he couldn't get rid of me. And I can hear this voice, clear as a bell, that bring him upstairs and I'll throw his ass out. And it was Raoul Walsh. So I go up to see Raoul. He went in and I waited. They called me in. Now, this is a shock, sports fans. If you think it's not, you're in trouble. I walk in the door, and the guy is seated behind the desk with his chin down, chewing on a dirty, rotten handkerchief. And the other end of it is stuck in his eye because he has no eye. Where the whole... <laughs> and there he sits, and he looks at me, and I look at him, and I'm not about to say anything, for Christ's sake. And he sat there ain't about 10 minutes. Nothing was said. Finally, he said, can you learn lots of words? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Give him a test. Okay. He gives me the test. I take it back. Fess looked at it and said, this is hideous. And he took me out to Bert Kennedy's office. Remember Bert? Sure. Director. He was a writer then, or trying to be. He rewrote it for me. And he said, now, whatever you do, for God's sakes, don't tell anybody that I wrote it because I can really get into trouble with the guild. Okay, fine, fine. And uh, I went in, took the test. I was terrible. Uh, about three days later, uh, they called me and told me I was going on the show, which is great. We're going to Vieques. You know what Vieques is? I'm very familiar, yeah. Aha. That's where we're shooting. That's why they didn't want me in the picture, because what's going to happen if you get there and the kid can't say a word? You're down for about three or four days. It's going to cost you a lot of money. So the first day, he didn't let me even look at what was going on. Well, he just kept me seated all by myself. At the end of the day, he had the AD came over, said he wants to see it. So I went to see him. He said, look, uh, we're doing a thing with so any name named off for, and he said they don't like the the uh, script. I want you to rewrite it like you rewrote the test. What shit? What am I gonna do? I, you know I've never been on it. Nothing. I rewrite it. That night he has it reproduced and he gives it out. And in the, it's a landing craft, and there are three or four Academy Award winners in the group of people in the landing boat. And Raoul tells them, the kid read the scene and doesn't like it, and he rewrote it for you. So 
I started off as a real big one <laughs> with the cast and the crew, but that was real. And I rewrote, what, maybe 20, 25% of Battlecry. Uh, why they used it, I had no way of knowing, but they did. And I have now not done a picture that I didn't rewrite. Why they let me get away with it, I have no idea. Did you name the character L.Q. Jones? Yes, after that. I didn't give a damn as long as the checks were made out. When we finished the picture, or even before that, uh, Raul, uh, Steve Trilling, who was the man that actually ran Warner Brothers for uh, the old man, they had told 10 or 15 directors, producers, heads of studios that I was the coming thing. Uh, with, I was never without a job for about uh, two or three years uh, with the people helping again, doing everything they could and rewriting. And that's the way it worked out. I was just, the old man smiled on me. I'd like to say I had that talent, but uh, we won't go into that. Around that time when you got started, were you studying acting? Did you ever take acting classes? No, Nothing. I was at my ranch in Nicaragua. Right. And that's where I was when Fess sent me the stuff, oh, saying this is, this is part I think you should, you'd like to do. So you stumbled on it by accident, largely? Completely. Uh, I did it because I came up, because I went to a, a Christmas party and Fest was there and we were, we'd been roommates. And I said, you know, BS, uh, I'll, I'll do it because I'm here and I can do it before I go back to Nicaragua. And I did and I never again went back to Nicaragua. So what, what were some of the tips that you learned on set about acting from from these very generous people in the, in the beginning that sort of gave you a guideline of how you were going to proceed? Because my impression from very early age, from the beginning of your career is you're always very, very specific. You're always doing something interesting in the scene. Is, it, was it helpful? Good. I don't know. The, the trick is to try to establish, for an actor, I found was to establish the fact that you are, you're adding something different because it was my thought that that's what I've got to do. I must bring something that I don't normally possess perhaps, but I've got to find a way to do it. And that's impossible without help. I got help from cameramen, from sound, from makeup, from gaffers. But Raul, like I just said, he was looking for something different he could do each time because he was at it for, what, 40-some-odd years. Made a fortune doing it. This is going to sound ridiculous, but bring something that's not there. Don't just show up. And he directed that way, and he liked people who did that. And I would, I'd listen to him, and he would tell me what he wanted not how to do it, leave it to me. And a lot of it was terrible, but that's why you have editors. A lot of it must have been pretty good because everybody in the business that counted knew who I was when I finished the picture, the first one. You got Jimmy Whitmore, you're going to do something that, that Jimmy Whitmore is showing you he's doing, you can't beat that. We had people that, a bunch of them, like I said, that had, that had won Academy Awards. Learn from them, ask. Uh, they'll tell you if you ask and help you all they can. It may sound maudlin, but without that, uh, I probably would have been shipped back from the, the, the first shoot. 
Mm-hmm. He's just Vieques. It's fun to work with Ralph. You never know what he's going to do. We did another picture, The Naked and the Dead. And boy, we had a tough time because the first three weeks, we didn't have a script. Well, Ralph's good at that sort of thing. But he got Joey Bishop and I often working on comedy. And Joey is so funny that once you understand what you, what he wants you to do, you do it. He's so tough because on that picture, we had, and I can't think of his name, the toughest Marine that God ever made. Dusty a Puller, I think it is, who's now a God to the Marine Corps, uh, was our tech on that. And he and Raul loved every Saturday, Raul would come out, the sun is like this. He'd take one look and said, ah, rain, that's it, wrap, and everybody goes home except he liked to sit and talk with Dusty. Dusty was humongous. And we talk, and so this went on for about four or five, six weeks. I was kept around as a gopher to go get the drinks and the food, the sandwiches and stuff. And it was great fun for me to get to listen to these two with their, what they were talking about. We got all set up. I had everything. And Dusty said he couldn't make it that day, that Saturday. And Ralph was really upset. He was almost crushed. And we were practically insulting the man to get him to stay. He wouldn't stay. He f- took off, and we we couldn't do it that weekend. Came back on uh, Monday, and it turned out he'd gone to the hospital for a cancer operation and had the operation and was back at work on Monday morning. Tough mother. Seriously. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He was the guy that on Iwo Jimo on the landing, they had a bunch of green kids and they realized it, but they, it was too late. And when they hit the beaches, the kids froze and they were just being slaughtered on the beach. Dusty ran over and picked them up literally by the seat of the pants and threw them towards cover. He was hit seven times with fire and that's Dusty. <laughs> So yeah. he's going to have a cancer operation. He has one. This was a time in, in movies where you had guys who were, really were there. They were in the war. You bet. And you actually served in, in the Navy. Yeah, but mine was a joke. Well, uh, <laughs> there are people who were getting, when you're getting shot at, you've been in the service. Hmm. Uh, I was in it to play uh, softball. Uh, they wanted a, a team, and I, I'd been playing softball since I was 13 professionally. And so they made a deal. It came down, this is strange, but I had an appointment to uh, West Point, Annapolis, and the Air Corps. But the problem is you got four years, which is great. When you get through, you got four years of education. You must take them. And then you got to give four years of service. And rightly so. Pay for your, for your stuff. And I didn't want that. So being a softball player, I, I was in for nine months, and I was gone. I was back home. Hmm. So it's unfair to the veterans to say that I'm a veteran. You also briefly flirted with law, didn't you? Didn't you do yeah, I was, or uh, pre-law? Or, no, I was in law school. I was at the University of Texas, and the University of Texas was the second most prestigious law school. And I got in because I was in the top 1% of the Texas, state of Texas. And with that great average, you had the right to choose what school you wanted to go to, and they had to let you in. And I was both that and I had service. 
so I could go to, to law school. And I realized very suddenly, these people are serious folks. <laughs> I was leading my class because I had an idiot instructor for one thing, and he saw to it that I learned. But law wasn't for me. It was great sport to see real people because they, boy, they turned out some good attorneys. Barefoot Sanders, just humongous. He's so good. I realized fairly early that wasn't for me. And so I got out, but it was fun. I wouldn't have exchanged the, the time for anything. Most everyone in there was a veteran, but every one of them was smart. And I mean, do you think because of your, because of going to law school, because of ranching in Nicaragua, your uh, experience playing softball no. and all before you decided to become an actor, do you think that helped you once you kind of know who you Oh, you were and yeah. where you stood. So yeah. when you got to a set and someone was like, hey, do this, stand, you know. I was uh, willing to try. And yeah. that's all they really ask of you, to do the best you can do. You may not be any good. If you're not, you're not going to work the next week. But that's okay. Do right. the best you can do. Ralph saw it to it that, that and he was like a father to me. There was nothing I could do bad that Ralph didn't like. He kept writing things in for both pictures for me. It made me very unpopular in a couple of places because we had about three other people in the picture that were doing a part, and he took their part and added it to mine. So I was not very happy with, you know, in that group. And I can understand them. I'd have been the same way. The only ones you have to worry with in my business are the little bitty nut. They're the ones you can't turn your back on. But the, the talented people do anything in the world to help you. Yeah, I mean, you had a, a, the opportunity to work with some uh, very well-known people, oh, very yeah. talented people of the time. I mean, by the time you get to the Young Lions, for example, you're working with Montgomery Clift and uh, a fair actor. Dean Martin. <laughs> yeah, I've heard, I've yeah. heard he's pretty good. Yeah. You actually got to beat him up in one scene, which I enjoyed. And steal him. from him for yeah. a while. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, but I got uh, Thomas Gomez. Very, if you ask people, uh, John McIntyre, most of them people know, but Thomas Gomez, greatest character person that ever lived. Wow. Uh, I was doing, he was an Indian chief. When we did Stay Away Joe, uh, he played admirals. He played girls. That's an actor for you. And if you walk around one of those people, it's amazing what they'll do to help because they're so good, it finally registers in your idiot brain that they're doing something you ain't doing. And not only will, will you try, they'll help you try. Uh, Gomez kept, you know, Q, don't do this, don't do this. Why are you looking over here? You're stealing from yourself. Hmm. Do this, do that. Don't lean here because you're covering somebody or you're cutting off uh, a key light. Uh, so be aware of what you're doing. Uh, and it is not as easy as it first sounds because you've got to hit a particular mark, especially when you're in a, a picture like Battle Cry where you don't have uh, two stars and that's it. You got 20, and you're given lines. You have to hit a mark. You've got maybe an inch, and if you don't, they have to do it again, and they don't mind doing anything except doing it again when they're having to pay the bill. So uh, I was doing things 
that only my crew could teach me, and the director, of course, Raul especially, because he would tell me what he wanted and say level two, level three, maybe one. Uh, so you fit in with what he was going to do with the rest of the actors, and you become a commodity with a group instead of standing out where you make the other people look bad. And so the main thing, and we had super, just superb actors. You don't think of them as that way. John Lupton and uh, John and I, we lived together for about six months. To watch John work, look at how he takes the scene apart and you teach you and you learn, uh, add something. No matter what it is, add something. If you don't, you don't belong. You gotta do something that someone else is not doing for the piece. You don't steal, uh, you don't try to shine. You try to bring something else that someone else maybe is not missing, maybe not picking, picking it up and do it. And Raul voiced that. He sees to it that it's not competitive so much as it is helpful. It's amazing the way he can do it and you're not aware of it. Only after the fact do you realize what a crappy thing I was doing. And look what he did with it. And it was marvelous because he was an actor years before he lost the eye. Oh, he was, he's led, he was the leading uh, actor in a number of pictures. Very good. Uh, again, the help, it's amazing. Uh, Brando was telling me, try this. This may not work, but give it a shot. And uh, everybody, uh, Dean, the actor we were just talking about, my Montgomery Cliff. Montgomery Cliff. Yeah. What would that man have been like when he was 45 or 50? Unbelievable talent. He was having a real hard time. And the picture was screwed up because here we are in, in, in Paris working. Brando's in the hospital with scalded balls, <laughs> quite, quite literally. <laughs> what? And Montgomery Cliff has got walking pneumonia. And he's the most healthy one. Dean Martin is, has got walking pneumonia. He and I became great, great friends. But you have to be careful with Dean because he's, he doesn't try to be funny. He enjoys life and he's hysterical. Well, they wouldn't let him out of the, the, the hotel with Brando in the hospital and the rest of the stuff. They had one chandelier that must have weighed 500 pounds, 700 pounds. It was a work of art. And Dean and I determined we were gonna steal it and ransom it back to the hotel. Well, idiots, but I thought it was great sport. And about five or six weeks later, Dean is working, he's back at work. And I'm in my room waiting and I get a call from the desk, and they said, Mr. So-and-so is here to speak with you. What the hell's that? Oh, well, so I went down. It was the guy that owned a company with trucks rigged for, for picking up huge loads. <laughs> Dean had made a deal, with, I mean, uh, what's his name, had, had made a deal with him to hoist this this chandelier, <laughs> we'd have been in jail. Uh, that was Dean, but wow. he was so funny. He's so much fun to be around, and the whole picture was going that way. Nothing was right. After 55 days, we were 54 days behind schedule. 
<laughs> it wasn't going too well. <laughs> yeah. Another very important director of Westerns that you worked with, maybe as important as Peckinpah, maybe not, was Bud Bedeker. Bud was a very talented man. Uh, I worked with him the once. It was the only time he made offers for two or three more things just didn't work out. But the man, uh, and I, I say this in sincerity, and I mean it, he made low-budget pictures, and they were low, the likes of no one else could do. And I told him, and I believed, if you gave him a lot of money, he'd make a piece of shit. I don't think he could handle it. I mean, we were doing our own stunts. It didn't make any difference. It was fun. We enjoyed doing it. Uh, and we had talented people. He keeps them around. The one trouble I had with with Bud, he was going with, what's her name? Uh, I'll think of her name in a minute. She stars. He was a big star. Well, <laughs> she said something that pissed him off. And he threw her out. Well, I live next door. My suite was right next to Bud. And so I heard all this to do. And there was a knocking at my door, Karen Steele. And it was Karen. And she started to explain. I said, hello, come on in. And so she spent the night with me. She slept in the bed and I slept in the sofa. Well, the next morning when we went to work, we opened the door. Bud came out of his room and we came out of mine. <laughs> and we had a little trouble there for uh, two or three or four days till he finally realized that uh, it was all a joke. But he's a very serious man. And he was always thinking. Uh, like I said, I was doing my stunts, which was a lot of horse falls. Uh, I had Mars laying on top of me. Uh, he was good at that. He he felt around. He studied the people. Did he do it between pictures? I think probably, and you just weren't aware of it. But he was, it, it, Bud is Bud, for Christ's sake. And he was, at one time, uh, a fighter of bulls. Right. Yeah, did you know that? Bullfighter and the lady. Yeah, yeah. sure. But he they, he he studied it. And one of them, the, the one of the greatest of all time, was a friend of his. And he collected about 20 hours of the, the guy in the ring. He was one of the greats of it. And when I did a picture with him, Bud was forever going to make a picture. Down, 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 down. Went on and on and on. And I believed he had talent. And I thought a, a movie might go at that time about bullfighting. So I got in touch with a friend that I knew, an attorney, and I said, you know, uh, I've talked to this director, Bud Bedeker. He's got 20 hours of film. We've got half the film already. It's, it won't take much. And he says he can do it for 50 grand. Can you put it together? And he said, is he really mean? And I said, yeah. I'd ask him four or five times. Yeah, I'll do it. 50,000 50, will get me out of it. So uh, I talked to Rob. He raised the money in 30 minutes, I believe. And he had the check and he came out and I set it up for him to meet with Bud. And we sat down and everybody was funny and laughed and giggled. And so finally they came to it and Rose said, I understand you can make the, the budget and you make the picture with a low budget. How much is it? And he says $100,000, and Rowe got up, put the, the uh, $50,000 check in his, in his uh, valise, and that was it. That was Bud. He never understood why he didn't get the money. He helped me with a lot of stuff about use this, uh, and I was looking forward to it. 
There was a book out just before he died, uh, 500 Horses, or uh, it was a hugely successful novel, and Bud was going to direct it. Hmm. And he called and said, will you do that? Sure. And uh, we had a breakfast meeting uh, with about five or six of the stars, and they were going to do it. And then something happened, and it went down the tube, and Bud died uh, two or three months later. 2001, yeah. Yeah. But he was a very talented man, very hardworking, and a pleasure to work with him. And his movies still, when you watch them, they still really move. The They're pace. good pictures. Yeah. And them. the best ones he made were the ones that uh, Bert wrote for him. And he kind of discovered, I don't know if he discovered or was the first director to really cast a lot of really great actors, well-known guys like Coburn and... Oh, yeah. yeah. And- they more or less, Jimmy especially, got his start with one of them. I've forgotten which one it was. The Tall T or Seven Men from Now or High Lonesome? It was... It was Ride Lonesome, maybe? It may have been Ride Lonesome, or it could have been Seven Men from Now. I mean, with the title like that, you can't... You, you No way you can fail. Right. He never, ever really got the recognition that he richly deserved. Totally agree. Especially when you look at how many directors borrowed from him. Oh, stole from him right and left. Yeah. And it was fun for me to do that one... Uh, but then when those things where I, I started making so much money, he couldn't afford me. I would like to have done some more with Bud. Uh, be damned with the money. Very quickly, you learn that pictures are really about scripts. And people say, I don't, you know, I don't believe that. Or it's just so-so. It's true. And when you get somebody like Bud or, or Bert who have figured something out, those they made about six little pictures that were the best the business put out for about three years. The best. And, and when you see that, if you're smart enough to cash in on it, Raoul was, uh, Bud was, but almost, if you look carefully at their stuff, you'll realize that it's really structured for comedy. They love comedy. I should say warmth, which is also comedy. So you only did the one movie with Bud? Or did you do any of his... No, TV? just the wood. None of his TV work or anything like that? I'm thinking of Lucian Ballard. Lucian was, to me, the best cameraman going. And I was very lucky to work with him uh, eight or ten times, with, right. especially with Peck and Paul, because Sam realized just how good Lucian was. It's just funny. Lucian was not that popular, and he should have been. But once we did the Ride the High Country, which I think is the best Saturday afternoon... <laughs> Hold your girl's hand and eat popcorn, Western ever made. It's fantastic. It's comedy, but it's something else in between. But look at the stuff on Ride the High Country. R.G. Armstrong, how do you get around some? And Randy, and he had more money than God, and he could finance the government. <laughs> but he was such a nice man. I worked with him twice, and it was, it was great fun each time. And boy, you learn something from him. Uh, what does a leading man do? Overact is not the word. And he showed you that, that voice of his. And he was a, an extraordinarily handsome man. Uh, he was also extraordinarily rich. You know, uh, Randy, not Randy, pardon me, Joel, owned half of Thousand Oaks. But he would come in about to, oh, two or three times a, a month and call. And if I wasn't working, go down and have coffee with him. With either he or Joel, or pardon me, Randy, Two best men God ever put together. Just lovely to work with, with both of them. 
Was that your favorite of the Peckinpah films? Either that or the other one, which is The Ballad of Cable Old. Yeah, that's a great one. Right in the high country is Sam Peckinpah. Uh, he came from the family because, you know, Sam was a nut, but he was a talented nut. But he didn't fit too well with the world because his brother or his father was chief justice of the California Supreme Court, all of them with heavy education. And Sam comes along making motion pictures. So they weren't sure they were going to have him committed and should have. Peck and Paul had the greatest sister that God ever put on earth, who was married to Walter the Friendly Bear, uh, and she kept him straight. Oh, what a lovely lady. Sam didn't realize how talented he was, but he's, he was, he'd be committed if he were alive today. He's crazy. And if you look at his stuff, it's, he takes, took a standard operating Western and made it something better. Ride to High Country has been made 34,000 times. And I hate to watch the picture because I'll sit there and cry like a baby when it's over. And nothing I can do about it. I've tried. He was crazy, but he was crazy like a fox in a lot of ways. But his sister kept him straight, and so did Walter the Friendly Bear, who was in stocks. Such a nice man. He was lucky to have a backup of a family. Uh, otherwise, he could never have made the pictures that he made. Uh, they saw to it that he got through them. Like we uh, we did um, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. One of my favorite films of all time. Okay. Love it. Well... Slim and I are going down in the plane. We didn't start with them. And they're paying me a fortune. And when I told my agent what I wanted, he said, Thank you. you're insane. They're not going to pay that money for you. I said, just what I want, tell them. And they paid it. So now we are arriving. We get there. And when that's the case, when they're paying you that kind of money, when you hit the airport, there's a limousine with your your makeup lady or man with the wardrobe person and you drive to location and when you get there you step out you're made up you're in wardrobe you you do the what do you've got to do and you undress while you go back to the the airport and you're through they've stayed within a budget that's all you can do well we got there and seven days later i hadn't even heard from sam and I finally got a call. They said, can you do me a favor? You bet. Would you go help him with wardrobe? <laughs> because he liked the wardrobe that I did. So I went and I did the wardrobe. I'm making more money than the star, for Christ's sake. <laughs> and I'm helping with wardrobe. And we finally, they says, okay, come out. And you know how it is? I, I think you probably have happened it. Someone that you know very well, that you really like, is really ill. And you may not seem, again, this, this is it. That's what Sam looked like when I went out to see him. And still, I didn't work. I worked another four or five, I mean, played around another five days. And then we did the scene that you've seen the picture. Uh, Cotty and Slim was his death scene. It is unbelievable. It's so good. Great love story in three shots. You bet. Amazing piece of work. We shot that all in one day. That's what we, and then we finally went back. Both of us didn't have to work the rest of the year because Sam had failed to do his work. Did you guys or did, did Peck and Paul have an, uh, talk, just talking about that scene where he dies by the river, was that, did he have any idea what that was going to turn out to be, that it was going to be that? Sam did. Uh, we, we were having a great deal of fun 
Jimmy and I, because if you remember, I'm crawling around on the rooftop and I come sure. down and I get shot and I'm wearing black BVDs, which was my, my name, Black. And that worked fine and he was very happy. And now it's getting dark and we couldn't figure out what the hell Sam was going to do. And he set him up. Cotty, of course, is a marvelous actress. And she knew what to do. And he waited and waited and waited until, as he loved to do, he had maybe 15 or 20 minutes to do the shot. And if he didn't get it in that period of time, they were going to have to wait 24 hours. But look at the color in that scene. You practically are in tears yeah. before it ever starts. Yeah. I was in tears because the son of a bitch stole $15,000 from me. <laughs> and he was discussing all of that period, how he's going to pay me, which, of course, he never did. But that was Peckinpah. Speaking of wardrobe, in Ride the High Country, I love that you're wearing the apron. You're the cook of the family, and you're wearing the apron that's, like, falling yeah. up. I, I don't know if that was your choice. Or oh, yeah. Not, yeah. yeah. Sam let <laughs> me alone great. just and would just tell me what he wanted, and I would do that. So almost, well, every picture that I was with him, with almost everybody, I just got to do wardrobe. When I was doing wardrobe helping, it wasn't wasted money because I was working with Gordy Dawson, who was the best I've ever seen. Gordy was the, the uh, wardrobe man when we did uh, the uh, Wild Bunch. And he took 47 hampers full of clothes. Normally in a big picture like that, he might take three. Then he ended up helping Sam direct it. Uh, Sam went on to do the number one show, and he was doing the number two. Because remember in the big shootout that lasted, what, like 15 minutes with all the kids and yeah. was at the end of the shot? Yeah. Well, that was what he was shooting. And most of that, Gordy did direct. But Sam made a lot of people talented that didn't have it. I, I like Sam because he does marvelous work but he's crazy and you but if you look at his stuff people can't understand how about and he was crazy how he's like that how can you possibly do good work and it's that sam is has great attention to detail that's what separates and if you think you know what attention to detail is we are on that show and we we were on a, a big plane, which is gorgeous. And we shot all day for a night. And it's about to go home and Sam said, I want to do one more. And we're doing a shot that you'll remember is in the picture where there's Bob Ryan, Paul, Struther, and myself. We are determining what we're going to do. We haven't the slightest idea but we are planning what we're going to do. Well, we did the master shot on that. It's the wrong time of day, but we did it. And two months later now, we had a break, and Sam said, okay, we'll, we'll do the end. We'll do the, the close-ups. So they you know, got Bob's, uh, got Paul, got Struther, got mine, and they had a little trouble as we went along. And we got mine, and Sam said, and about this loud, okay, that's a cut. And we thought, oh, shit, who's done it? We're going to find out. And he started around. He asked the camera what he had done. He asked this. He asked that. 
finally got on props. And he said, Tony, what did you think? And Tony says, what? Fine, fine, what's to think? For Christ's sake, if I were LQ, I'd start writing my acceptance speech. Who cares? It's fine. And Sam said, really? And we knew the ax was going to fall. And he said, uh, how many beans does LQ have on his plate? Tony said, I know. I know how many beans he got on his fucking plate. Well, he says he had eight. When we shot the master, he had 13. You're fired. Now, we're two-thirds into the picture. All of your props have been <laughs> supplied by Tony. And Tony says, I'm going home. You can take this picture and shove it. And they begged and they pleaded, every one of us. Finally, Tony said, okay, I'll make this deal. I will not go on the set. I'll send my, my assistants. But if Peck and Paul even trips and falls against my wagon, I'm going home. And that's what we did for the rest of the picture. Because Sam counted the beans. Now that's, you, you say, that's oh, silly. It is silly. That's carried to the up because he was about to make a five or six million dollar. Well, that's what it was. If we had to start over again, it would have been five or six million dollars. But attention to detail. And that's what he, he, he wanted his crew doing the same thing. Actors doing the same thing. Uh, many people just detested working with him. I loved it because you, you really made you think. I mean, but if you work one picture with Sam, you're crazy. Look at me. I did 13. So I'll tell you something about that. But Sam knew what he was doing. And boy, uh, you had to admire him for that. Sure. Even yeah. with the, the crap that went with it. Well, how'd you get into Ride the High Country? Because that was your first movie with him. So did you go and read for that, or was it offered to you? No, uh, yeah, yeah, but I. It was one of those things. We did a picture called Annapolis Story, Navy Blue and Gold. Uh, John Derrick, who's one of the best looking ladies I've ever seen in my life. Oh yes, he's gorgeous. You put long hair on him. He's the. It won any any beauty contest. In the world. Isn't that Bo Derek's dad? I think so. But he was a, an athlete beyond belief. Anyway, we did that. And Sam was helping with, with dialogue. A coach of, of sort. Uh, that was my third picture. And I got it because of Battlecry. But here's the guy being Sam. said, I, kid, I like what you do. When, I'm, you know, when I direct, I'm going to be a big director. Yeah, sure, sure. And I was sitting in my agent's office. And he had called and made the deal for a, a Ride to High Country. Then after that, I worked, every, I think I worked practically every picture Sam did. Uh, I don't know why, but I, I damn sure wasn't cheap. And like all crazy people, occasionally he had moments of silence where it was, you could figure things out. And I think he knew that I would keep an eye on him because a lot of times he would do things like the, the uh, how many beans the LQ got in his plate. We want to talk to you about a, a boy and his dog. How did you find that story? We were working on one of our pictures. I've forgotten which one it was. And my cameraman, John Morrill, best cameraman in the business, dropped off. He says, I've got a story I think you might be interested in. And he dropped it off and said, Ray, didn't tell me what you think. And about two or three months passed. And Sheila, our secretary, said, Q, have you, have you read his... His story. 
Oh no, God, well, she's coming in tomorrow to talk about some things. You owe it to him. And I said, you're right. So I took it home with me that night. And I didn't get around to it till about two o'clock in the morning. And the kids were asleep and I had to get up the next morning at five o'clock. But I read it and I got about a third of the way through. And I said, this is criminal, absolutely criminal, because he cannot top this. How are you going to end it? There is no way. And then I read another third and I said, it's getting worse. And I read the last third and I fell on the floor in hysterical laughter, realizing what it could be. Yeah. Walked in the next morning to Alvin Moore, my partner, and said, this is what we're going to shoot next. Is, <laughs> is the ending of your film the same in the book? or similar? Yes, and I'm the, it almost put me in the poorhouse. We travel with the picture when it first came out, and I could be three or four blocks away from the theater and know when the picture ended. Yeah. People have thrown up. They <laughs> literally... They have fainted. <laughs> They've jerked chairs out of the ground. Uh, <laughs> and I, it's to me, it's hysterically, I'm the only one in the world that would do that ending to a picture. But the dog is hysterical. The dog's a great actor. Oh, it, the dog is he a is an actor. Good actor. <laughs> uh, we did things with that dog, uh, that damn dog on the farewell scene where he's waiting outside the drop shaft. Tears. They just dripped down the side. I tried to buy them for everything that I could stir, and they said no. Finally, they came up with a price, but I couldn't afford it. But I, I said, I'll guarantee you that he will not do anything else except another boy and his dog, because he was on the Brady Bunch. He's the dog right. on the show. I now, thought I was crazy, because I'm watching the scene. It's when he and Don Johnson part ways. And that's what I'm talking yeah. about. Yeah, and I look at Rebel, I'm like, I think the dog is doing the work. I think the dog just got emotional, for real. <laughs> he did. Yeah. He, he, broke, he went into tears. Uh, I tell people that, and they say, oh. But he does. The, the, for a while, there was a movement afoot to put him up for an Oscar okay. as Best Supporting Actor. Yeah, they they wouldn't have to that. get it by me. Mm. That's the damnedest, most talented animal I have ever been around. Uh, Jason Robards, who at the time was the best actor in our business, came down and did his part. And when he was through, he said, what do you think? And I said... Uh, let me tell you something. If you could hit your mark like Tiger hits his, I can make a star of you. <laughs> and he knew exactly what I was saying, and he, that I was right. That dog was beyond belief. I watched the picture 500 times. You have to when you're working on it. Uh, it's all you do. Get the, the reference points. I don't watch anybody else. I watch the dog. And to this day... He has not failed to show me something new. Every time I watch him, he is was brilliant. Little bitty things you don't think about. What is the first thing that makes you think it's an animal, a, a dog? A dog wags his tail. And so we didn't want that to happen. We made a device that we could, it was made to, to clamp around his tail and wrap around his buttocks so you wouldn't see it, but it would keep the, the uh, tail from wagging. And we did that the first day. And the second day we forgot it and we had to work without it and he never wagged his tail. He didn't wag his tail for the rest of the picture when he was shooting. Now you say that bullshit, 
<laughs> I'll tell you, I went through about five weeks of it. I know what that damn dog could do. Yeah. He was marvelous. He should have won supporting actor. Really should have. Yeah. yeah. I don't know who won that year. I have no <laughs> idea who it was. No. I don't think I'd seen a movie about the a sort of post-apocalyptic world that depicted that type of future in in the way that it is depicted in the boy and his dog. You have that desert landscape, you know, everything's sort of like um well, it's all done wasteland on purpose. Yeah. and there are a lot of dead bodies not one, lying not around. One blade of grass. Right. And that's where you so we're because I, I I and we were doing the picture, I didn't have any money. Or I had very little. I said, what can I do? The only thing they were thinking about was making the picture with three city blocks of locations. And you had to build them all. They didn't exist. It pestered me for days, weeks, months. And then finally it occurred because I talked to people who were knowledgeable about what would happen if we had the atomic bomb go off. And that's it. Everything is going to be mud because it's it's going to upset the sea. The oceans will not stay where they belong. It's going to wash the world. And that what will happen, it's going to dry and you got mud. And as soon as I said mud, I knew I was home. And that's the way I did the picture. I could have done a better job, but we did a pretty good job. I built cities out of old used rubber tires. You had to understand it before you could do it, and you had to believe you could do it. I said, I wish I had the talent that the picture shows. Nobody does, but it was one of those lucky things where everything we did was right. A year ago, you told me a story, and I've, I've forgotten some of it, but it was really interesting, about one of your first performances when you were young with Helen Keller. <laughs> yeah. I was playing with the Philharmonic Orchestra in Beaumont, Texas. And uh, we, Helen Keller was the guest of honor. And most of us didn't even know who Helen Keller was. We finally figured out. And she showed up and she sang. And which I couldn't figure out how she, and then it was very plain. Because I, in my mind, I, what did she do? She came out, she did a little bow to the, the crowd and she walked over and rested her hands on the piano. So she was able to sing, it was off key, but it didn't make any difference. She sang a whole song. Just by touching the piano, she could tell? Remember, she'd been for life. So uh, you and I probably couldn't do it, but she could feel that rhythm. But almost any picture's fun. You know, if, if, you, if you approach it right, it's just fun. You're finding that out. And it's fun being in the business. And I've been very lucky, luckier than almost anybody uh, with the help that I've been given. I've gotten to work with such talented people.